looking for his first hit of the year. He drives one! Deep left field! Back goes up and back near the wall. It's Remember That Guy, the sports podcast where we mine our memories for nuggets of nostalgia about peripheral players past and present. And just like Bartolo Colon, I am strolling to home here. It is me, your host, James. Back with you again, coming down home. Diaz with you once again. We have not just one special guest, please, first special guest, regular special guest, <laughs> reoccurring special guest. Some may even say specialist guest. Uh, I, I, like, I like the specialist Yes, the specialist, very special guest, Xavier, I am here. But with that being said, there is one more special guest, friend of the pod, Mr. Dante Lamandola. Please introduce yourself to the, to the audience. Hello. How are you today? Hello, I am the super mega special guest today. My name is Dante. It is a pleasure to be with you three today. Thank you for including me, and I am so ready to talk some guy. Yeah, and like throw some more uh, adjectives on there if you want. You can you can go all balls to the wall here. It's fair game. I love it when Diaz, you or I do the thing because we do this a lot where we uh, say someone's name as we ask them to introduce themselves. I love it. I love it. It's like you know this person they have a name. I'm gonna tell you what it is right now. They're gonna introduce themselves, and now they're gonna have to maybe say a, a funny thing. I'm really putting the pressure on them to think of something fun to say in that point because if they were banking on their name. Guess what, fucker? We already crossed that one. <laughs> well, speaking of putting our guests on the spot, hey, Dante, how about you kick off making memories for us? Oh, my God. I would love to make a memory. So I, unfortunately, have not been following too much of the March Madness this year. You know, I've been happy with the upcoming baseball season, but I was very fortunate to tune in and watch the entirety of that UConn-NC State game. That was hands down the best basketball game I've seen all year. And I hope you all agree with me. Like, There's like, like maybe one or two Spurs wins that have been like incredibly good. Well, you're wrong, okay? No, no, here's what I'm saying. They have no context to match to that. Like, There's been no better game that has happened in, in a more meaningful sense at all this season whatsoever. No, Paige Beakers is absolutely incredible. Uh, I do think the thing that some people are saying about UConn getting too much shine what Sue Bird said in response to that is totally fair. Like, hey, don't be mad at UConn for getting some. Be mad at them for not giving other schools more. At the same time, UConn does command a lot of attention. And they are going to lose to Don Staley in the South Carolina Gamecocks. So, like, let's just make that clear. It is. So, my two prevailing thoughts from that game were, one, Paige Beckers is inevitable. She is probably the most dominant college basketball player, men's or women's, that I've ever seen. And the fact that she was able to come back from getting carried off the floor in December. Let's not forget this. She got carried off the floor. It turned out she had a tibial fracture and a torn meniscus. And then comes back and in the biggest game of her life, drops 27 points in a double overtime thriller. Just Which she went, I think, six for seven in the overtimes combined, I believe, I think is what it ended it's up being. It's something absurd like that. I, she didn't miss for her first four shots. Uh, no, it was incredible. She's great. The NC State Wolfpack was knocked down. All they had to fall back on is Tommy Taters. Tommy Taters is still doing great, in case you were wondering. Tommy Taters watches still going strong. The grievance, though, the grievance is that that game was played in Bridgeport. For the two seed to have essentially a home court advantage over the one seed, it is uncomfortable. Yeah, but I mean, the fact that they're doing home games for anything in the women's tournament. South Carolina was never going to lose a single game in South Carolina. No, that's true. Fairness that's doesn't true. matter. Well, so for those first two round games, I'm fine with that, right? Hey, let's make sure we get good attendance. Let's give, like, good home wins for these major programs to open the tournament. 
that's fine. I'm totally good with that. For the Sweet 16 and the Elite Eight, we need to have some semblance of neutrality, I would say. That's just me. Dante, we definitely agree with you. That game was incredible. But I'll give you a moment if there's anything other than the, the total UConn Huskies domination of the world that has been really making memories for you this moment. I mean, that's that's all I got. I'm upset with myself that I have not been following the women's tournament a lot more closely this year. Arna, where's where's the next game going to be? I think I remember them saying this is actually going to be a home game for Paige Beckers and her family. I believe it's in Minneapolis. Yeah, it's at the Target Center in Minneapolis. She's from Minnesota originally, yeah. Yeah, she's from Edina. That makes sense. And that actually leads into one of the things I wanted to talk about real quick. Yeah, no, that, go for it. So um, today, Paige Beckers signed an NIL deal with the education platform Chegg. Mm-hmm. And what they're doing is they're partnering with the hunger relief company Gooder to host a pop-up grocery market on Saturday in, in Minneapolis. That's going to give out 6,000 free meals. And then also they're going to try to expand to have free pop-up grocery stores. Uh, I guess they wouldn't even be pop-up. They'd be free permanent grocery stores on school and college campuses across America. You know, because they were talking about how she rules. She absolutely fucking rules. of college students have suffered from food insecurity since the start of the pandemic. And so she's using her name, image, and likeness rights to help fight food insecurity, which is awesome. While being, if I'm not mistaken, the most well-compensated name, image, and license person left in the Final Four at this point. Yeah, it's $63,000 is the value of her social media posts at this point. My God. $63,000 for an Instagram post. The, The power that you wield with that. Paige Becker's rules. Well, I mean, X... Don't hold yourself to just that. What else is going for you right now? Well, as our listeners will know, I was very stressed about World Cup qualifying for the past two-plus weeks. The U.S. did essentially take care of business on Sunday at home in Orlando against Panama, winning 5-1 thanks to Christian Pulisic's first-ever international hat trick, which made the trip to San Jose, Costa Rica yesterday not as stressful as it might have been. The U.S. has never won there. The last time they drew there was before I was born in 1992, and all they had to do to qualify was not lose 6-0. It was a cagey first half. They did end up giving up two goals on bad set-piece defending, but the 2-0 loss, despite being a little disappointing way to end your qualifying, it's good enough to qualify for the World Cup. And that's all that matters. And we find out the the groups tomorrow, whether the USA is in a group of death with Brazil and Serbia and Wales, or whether they're playing in the group with Qatar, Tunisia, and Ecuador, or Ukraine, or Scotland. It'll be very interesting to see what happens. It could go one of many ways. I'm just excited that we're going to be there because the U.S. has the youngest team in the entire tournament. This is all about gaining experience for 2026, which will be hosted here. All our guys will be in the prime of their careers, and they can make a run. I, I did not realize that we were full on the youngest team. That's kind of neat. Youngest like by that. two years. It's not even close. By two years? Yeah. Wow. Okay. Hell yeah. Go on, young bucks. No, I saw a bunch of people saying online, it, that's the same kind of mentality that I struggle with in a, a fantasy dynasty baseball league that I'm in with the three of you, I realize, where it's like, yeah, man, just get hyped for 2026. Hey, I can't get hyped for 2026. That's years from now. That's not a real year. We got to get through quite a few more. 
until we get there. But, Xavier, correct me if I'm wrong, but aren't they talking about trying to make the World Cup every two years instead of every four? So there were, there were talks about making the World Cup biennial. Uh, it sounds like they might have dropped off on that, but they might do it for the Women's World Cup, which people have said actually does kind of make sense because women's game could use more exposure. There's not as many big tournaments like there are with the Euros and Copa America on the men's side. So they might still do it for the women's side, but sounds like they've kind of tabled it on, on the men's side for the moment. It could always change. You know, that's one of the things about FIFA is that of the 200 and something member countries, everyone gets one vote. Usually the same 20 teams make the World Cup. And then it's a rotating list of 10 to 30 that make up the other spots, which is why they've expanded it to 48 from 32 starting in 2026. But that still means 80% of FIFA countries have no chance of making a World Cup ever usually. So they are always trying to find ways to benefit those smaller countries, even if it might not be the best quality of competition. And so, you know, some of the things they talked about have been, if you make it one year, you can't go to the next year. That way it's always new teams. I don't think, a lot of it doesn't make sense. I don't think it's going to yeah, happen that's for dumb. the men. That's a dumb rule. It, it's, Sorry, you're too I don't think it's, it, I, I really don't think that the biennial World Cup fixes any of the so-called problems that they have with that. But when you're beholden to a lot of countries that will never go to the World Cup, who want more money to grow their games and possibly their own pockets, I'm not saying it, but soccer has been very, very corrupt in the past. Chuck Glazer no. had an entire uh, New York City penthouse apartment just for his cats. They're always changing things up. You know, who, who knows? One thing that is sad is that qualifying will never be difficult for the U.S. again because CONCACAF will get get six spots starting in 2026. Despite the fact that they qualify as hosts anyway, it's just going to be... They would have to have everyone die to not qualify out of CONCACAF. Okay, real quick. We've said some things on this show that have led to bad things coming to pass. So, like, (laughs) let's chill on saying that statement. Everyone will be fine. Everyone will be fine. I am glad. No, when we say anything about it to a certain point, things just start to go badly. So all I'm going to say, Xavier, is I'm glad that you can chill for a little bit because we're in the fucking World Cup. All right? Just relax. And it's in November, which feels weird. It's a a November World Cup in Qatar. seven months to just... And it's just all in one city because Qatar is just Doha and nothing else. All the stadiums are in one city and reporters are there for the draw tomorrow and everything is still under construction because they're just trying to fit 32 nations worth of teams and fans in one city that is brand new. So it's going to be weird, but all I care about is the USA going there and doing well. You got half of that guaranteed now. Diaz, should I ask who's making memories for you or should I just ask how the Sixers are doing? So right now it's 81-75. Sixers are playing the Pistons as we record on Thursday evening. I could go on a rant about this MVP discussion, but I'm choosing to remain positive right now. And instead, what I wanted to bring up is that who is making memories for me is the new head coach of the Seton Hall men's basketball program, which is Shaheen Holloway. The run that he just led St. Peter's on is... Maybe the coolest thing that ever happened in the tournament. Like, I don't think that's a stretch to say, necessarily. I I feel like a lot of people have forgotten about the Loyola Marymount story. It's the only one. But I'm sorry, their at-worst second-best player died on the court 
and they made it. And they made it while shooting left-handed free throws in honor of him, even though yeah, they were all like, right-handed. St. Peter's is good. People are yeah. are so quick to forget. I will give to St. Peter's, though, that they had by far the lowest budget in the MAC. They have no money to spend on sports whatsoever. They're not like a, a very wealthy school. This is me- mediocre high school level facilities, and they went to the Elite Eight. It's incredible. I, the, the, the only other thing I wanted to say on Marymount is I have played pickup basketball at the Hank Gathers Recreation Center above of Temple's campus around, like, I believe, like 23rd and Diamond, I want to say. But as Hank Gathers, Philly goat, Philly legend. But back to St. Peter's. Enough has been said about the run, but I just wanted to say one specific thing that I thought spoke to the quality of individual that Shaheen Holloway is and the team that he had coached and the group that he had overseen was that after all of their wins, with the exception of the Sweet 16 win over Purdue, especially that first win over Kentucky, a lot of teams, when it's that 15 seed, you know, they rush the court, they start going crazy, whatnot. Shaheen immediately waved the team back over and said, no, get in line. We're going to shake their hands. From two perspectives, I love that. First one being that it shows respect for your opponent. We don't want to celebrate too much. We want to congratulate you on a game well played. But also on another level, it shows that to him it wasn't an upset. A couple of the players, I think, said something to that effect. They were coming into the locker room on some of those games like, yeah, we're telling ourselves that we can win these games. Exactly. And it wasn't anything that was shocking to them or that they thought was worth going crazy over because they expected to win and they expected to win the next game too. And they were focused on winning the next game pretty immediately. So I think that's a tremendous testament to the culture that Shaheen Holloway created. I would hope that this means that St. Peter's has now established themselves as a basketball program and even in his absence, hopefully they can continue to make some noise, become one of the the regular participants in March. But well, I hope that for St. Peter's, I can say very confidently that Seton Hall is going to be back on the map very quickly. I give it five years until they're on championship contender level. Um, okay. I mean, you're, if we're if we're comparing the resources that Shaheen Holloway had available to him at St. Peter's versus what he'll have available to him, <laughs> oh yes, proportionally. Hall, I'm not saying that it's a directly pr- correlated improvement in the output that's going to result from that, but like, you give a guy like that that is so indelible to Seton Hall basketball already, having been the starting point guard on the last team from New Jersey to at least make it to the Sweet 16 when he was at Seton Hall which is just such an incredible fact to create that homecoming for him. I just, I, I, I don't see any way that he isn't anything but successful there. It's the, it's the beginning of the Shaheen Holloway story. Hopefully it's still the beginning of the St. Peter's basketball story, but surely this is, I think, the launching off point to an incredible career. Like, we're going to be in 20, 30 years, we're still going to be talking about Shaheen Holloway. And it's, this was the genesis of it. This was an incredible run that he took St. Peter's on. So Shaheen Holloway... And St. Peter's, especially my boy Eddard with his little pencil mustache <laughs> that took the nation by storm. You love all of them. Rupert, a Philadelphia native and tough backup center for them. So many great guys on that team. But yes, making memories for me, Shaheen and the boys up at St. Peter's. 
credit to St. Peter's for being the team to make it second furthest in a March Madness tournament this year while also having the word Cox in their team name. But <laughs> South Carolina is going to win the women's title, just so we're all very clear. That memory hasn't been made for me yet, though, while I am rooting for them. In the meantime, you know who's doing it for me? Suyoshi Shinjo. Suyoshi Shinjo, uh, former MLB player, second ever Japanese-born MLB position player, and first ever in the National League. He was also first ever player born in Japan to ever make a World Series. Made the World Series in 2002 with the Giants when Barry Bonds' Giants lost to K-Rod and the Anaheim Angels. Also, how weird is it that when I think of that Anaheim Angels team, still the immediate first player you think of is a rookie reliever? Weird-ass World Series champion team. However, that's in the past for Suyoshi. We're talking about what's now. In his time, since he left MLB, he did finally win a championship in Japan back in the day with the Hokkaido Nippon Ham Fighters. In his final season, he announced he was going to retire. They made it to the playoffs, and he was allowed to pitch the ninth inning to get the final out for a first-ever championship in his career. So he's a Hokkaido Nippon Ham Fighters legend, a fashion icon making stupid amounts of money in Japan. He won the Japanese version of Who Wants to Be a Millionaire at some point. And then <laughs> the Hokkaido Nippon Ham Fighters decided, you know what we need right now? We need to bring back franchise legend Suyoshi Shinjo as our manager. However, they didn't get Suyoshi Shinjo as their manager because one thing that he did before he became manager is he very specifically changed what his name is officially registered in with the Nippon Professional Baseball League to yes. all capital letters, all one word, Big Boss. Big Boss. That's Big awesome. Boss. That's he so entered good. his first game of the season. First off, he came out onto the field in a light-up jersey. Like, he had lights installed in the embroidery of his jersey with Big Boss on the name. Because, again, that is his official name in all Nippon records. He is Big Boss. He goes to stand in the batter's box for the ceremonial first pitch. Catches the pitch out of the air with his bare hand so he can run it up to the pitcher to get the game started. This is just the first game of the season. Then it's time for the first home game of the season. This is, again, a franchise legend. How are they going to debut this guy becoming the manager of their team in their home stadium for the first time? He's just going to ride a hovercraft into the stadium, obviously. Just a giant floating hovercraft that he basically parked in the middle of the field to get the game started. Did the fighters unfortunately lose 4 to nothing? Yes, they did. Are they unfortunately 0-4? Yes, they are. You know what, though? Since the John Means no-hitter, he this man has done more for me in baseball than the Baltimore Orioles. And I, I absolutely adore Big Boss. Do hope that he turns it around for the Ham Fighters and gets back to that mountain. But what more could possibly entertain my attention when Suyoshi Shinjo, a.k.a. Big Boss, is doing his thing out there? I just love, in general, the way that both the Nippon Pro Baseball League and KBO treat baseball. Because they make it fun. They so embrace the fun, fun side of it. The bat Baseball flips is supposed are, to be fun. The bat flips are indelible to their baseball culture. And just imagine if we allowed it to be the same here, as opposed to it being worthy of a fight or Brian McCann we shoving his forehead into yours as you approach home plate if you flip a bat. What are we doing, man? Like, Here's how we can affect change. Because I don't want us to just complain for the sake of complaining. We need to organize a game this year at some point 
We need a big enough group that we can have a hooligan section for one game. We need to do the work of making some chants ahead of time. We need we need to sit down. We need to make sure that people have learned the songs, learned the chants. This is going to be effort. We need to all get decked out like scarves. That's what all the soccer hooligans wear, right? Why are scarves such a big thing in soccer? Anyway, is this is how we can make the cha- This is how we can be the change that we want to see in the world. We have to create for at least one game a baseball hooligan section. And replace the World Series trophy with a gigantic sword like they had in the KBO when the NC Dinos won and celebrated with a massive video game sword from an actual MMO video game that was created as a full-sized replica that they were just hoisting up in the air. That should be the trophy. MLB, if they allowed us to have as much fun as people have on the other side of the earth, and then it's just that picture of the futuristic city that you see on Twitter all the time. But yeah, again, as great as all that is, I don't want us to take away from how absolutely singular, even in this amazing culture, Suyoshi Shinjo has been so far in his four games as a manager for that team. But we're not here to talk about that. We are here to talk about a guy that is being brought for our consideration. It is once again a, as we said, guest appearance here by our friend Dante. And, And Dante, as I understand it, you've brought your tribute your sacrifice here to the altar before the three of us to offer up that we may judge their soul of guidance on the celestial scales of Anubis. I would like to present probably the guyest guy you, you have all ever heard about. So, that's man a of- bold assertion. That is a bold assertion, sir. I mean, uh, Diaz can make bold assertions every week. Why can't I? <laughs> I, I earned my assertion, sir. Now I, already, I, 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 I'm already nearing a spiteful no vote, no matter who this is, Dante. Ooh. I'm nearing that. I'm not there well, yet. I've got a, so before we, I've got a big before challenge we get into more of a back and forth, how about you just introduce this guy while he still has a fighting chance? So this guy has had stories about him that have been the things of urban legends, it seems like. Stories that people find impossible. Stories that made him the first celebrity in the game of baseball. And these and these stories, you know, thankfully going back, uh, we've been able to find that a lot of these turn out to be true. You know, folks have gone and checked newspaper articles, box scores, talked to people around the world. Now, this this guy wasn't just a legend almost. This man was probably one of the greatest pitchers in the history of baseball. Walter Johnson said he's got more sheer pitching ability than any man he's ever seen. Cy Young, who faced off against this man, called him the greatest left-hander of all time. I am talking about George Edward Rube Waddell. Yep, I knew it. Rube knew Waddell. it. Rube Waddell. Immediate now, question, because I've heard his name before, and you've made it clear yep. already. Okay, so that's not his, his given name. Does he precede Rube being used as an insulting thing, or was it an insult already when people were calling him Rube? It kind of acted as an insult at the time. You know, for, for them, Rube was a term for what we, we might call someone like a country bumpkin, almost. Uh, someone who's less civilized than everyone else. Rube, there are some stories about how the name came to be, whether it was a childhood nickname 
But one common story is when he finally made it into the professional level, he was around folks that had traveled around cities and saw this like big lumbering guy. Out of nowhere, the catcher said, all right, Rube, show me what you got. And eventually that name just stick. You know, at first it was fine kind of an insult. He hated it. Down the line, his longtime manager, Connie Mack, would also refuse to call him Rube. He was known as Eddie to Connie Mack. But eventually, Rube became a term of endearment for him. If people are shouting your name from the stands, offering to buy you drinks out in public, you're going to embrace that name. So It's also like, there's always been a, a legacy. If, if you've got a good you name, it's such a good one to chant. Like, you go to a Bruce Springsteen concert, mm. you go to an Orioles game back when we had Luke Scott... Uh, you go to an Orioles game nowadays if Boog Powell is around just because he's got a barbecue place now in the stadium and shows up whenever he feels like it. Do Staley for the Eagles. Oh, memory lane. <laughs> but yeah, wonder, wonderful player. Where to begin? I think, you know, I think the only way you could really begin to talk about this, this guy's story is to go back to the beginning. You know, Rube was actually a player at the turn of the 20th century and was born in, I believe, Radford, Pennsylvania which is east of Erie, north of Pittsburgh, south of Buffalo even. And at the time, Bradford was a developing oil place. So back then, barely a couple thousand people living there, but growing oil industry, growing mining industry, railway industry, you saw a big boom. And Rube was never the type of guy to go to school, even at a young age. He would help out in the mines. He would help out doing some heavy lifting. He was a farmhand a lot. And you're, wait, as, you're saying that someone that people will later refer to as Rube was not classically educated. Shocker. I know. I realize wow. that. And, you know, this was, this was back before people did strength conditioning, back before kids would go to clinics and work on their development. Rube didn't do any of that. Rube threw rocks at crows out in the field to prevent them from getting the crops. And he did both left and right hand. And they credit that, you know, constant monitoring of the fields to how he developed his arm. People don't realize, too, this man was 6'2", 225 pounds back in the day where that was unheard of. He's working in the mines. Like, that's your strength and conditioning training. <laughs> this is all just Last. Mr. Miyagi training. It's all stuff that you're basically trying to recreate with the shit that people do in gyms now. I just want to I just want to paint the scene so you know where we're going back to. No, I love it. I I, I love how there was a time where there were industrial American lifestyles that would just kind of turn you into an athlete. And you know, even before then there were stories about how how strong and even eccentric he was. They say at the age of 2 years old, he broke all the bars off of his crib. Clean off. When he was three years old, there's the story goes that his parents couldn't find him for days on end. It seemed like he ran away from home. They're young three-year-old boys. This is never a problem with the brothers and sisters. And they ended up finding out that Rube had ran away and slept over at the local firehouse because he just loved firehouses. He loved them. And this wasn't even something that was just a childhood fascination. As you'll see down the line, this is something that extended into adulthood. So young Rube... Strong guy breaking the crib bars. He's hanging out with firefighters, hurling rocks at birds. And naturally, you know, when when That's local when local baseball leagues would rise up in coal country of like outside of Pittsburgh, 
this is naturally something Rube would want to join up. At 17 years old, he was an absolute menace. Dominating presence on the field, that six foot two frame coming down. It was like facing Randy Johnson back in the day. Seven foot is the new six foot. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So playing the game in an organized structure, it took him a little time to get used to. Because he's used to, as you could tell, marching at the beat of his own drum. He had to take some time getting used to not hurling balls at the batters when they were running down the base path. To him, that was always an out. He was never someone to follow the rules. Even to the point where if he was in the middle of the game and a friend came by and asked him to go fishing, he would just up and leave. Into his adulthood, at the age of 17, he would always keep a pair of red underwear, undergarments, under his jersey, just in case a fire broke out and his services were needed. Wait, Ready for why a call does, to action. What, <laughs> yeah, wait, what why, does why that have to do with him rendering services? <laughs> because he wanted, to help, he wanted to help out the community. He loved firefighters, and He's he knew he was a strong these. guy, can help out. <laughs> They needed him more than any He's, stupid baseball game might need. He, he seems like a very nice... I'm picturing <laughs> Lenny from Mice and Men. I'm picturing just a very young John Malkovich who's ripped as this athletic Lenny of Mice and Men. That's, that's a fair comparison. You know, Lenny accidentally squished a mouse to death because he didn't realize his own strength. Meanwhile, Rube did something similar where during a, a greased hog event... He accidentally broke all the legs and killed a hog by trying to hurl oh, it over God. his shoulder. Same thing. You know, I mean, this just a greased hog event. 20th century Western PA. This is, you know, folks had to do these types of things for entertainment. It was, it was a hoot nanny. And another funny story, as I mentioned before, he didn't necessarily always like to follow the rules. And he would find a way to get around them. This would be a common theme later on as well. They would try to forbid him from wearing those red undergarments under his uniform by putting in uniform rules. Managers thinking at the time, well, if he's not going to wear that red underwear, he's not going to chase off and fight those fires. That did not stop him. One story goes that as a fire broke out, he stripped off his uniform just as he would normally do without even realizing that he failed to wear any underwear. Oh, so no. he's just naked. Yeah. He's got Just a job a to do. Big naked pitching John Malkovich running through the streets. Who is a volunteer firefighter who was not asked to volunteer, who's just showing up naked to fight a fire alongside Are some you train over that man? Are you going to say no to naked John Malkovich? There's, I think if I was a firefighter, I might. There's not many things that could make being in an active fire worse. I think seeing a naked man running into my building is maybe the one thing that I can even think of that would make this a less good situation. Is someone I don't really want help from all that badly. <laughs> like, I will take help from almost anyone in that situation. I did say almost, though. I would need to give him help. I would be, I'd be like, listen, enough about this fire thing. I, I can deal with these burns later. Let's get you some fucking clothes, buddy. Like, uh, cover your I need decency. to get them out of the house anyway. As soon as we get out of here, we're going down to an Old Navy, okay? We're going to get you some nice jeans, maybe a nice shirt, Rube. The only thing I'll say is I do now understand why the name Rube has come to be. This is truly an enigma of an individual already. No, Diaz, I would like to point out that's, that's a very understanding and progressive approach to how to work around this gentleman. And unfortunately, it only seemed like 
there was one man at the time that really understood how to work with him. But early on in his professional career, a bunch of those city folk didn't necessarily know how to talk to him. They tried to discipline as a means to encourage good behavior. And that would often come back to backfire. Frequently, as you said, buy him a nice suit, buy him some nice clothes. That's well, how you would get the You're not going to put a part. suit on this man. That, yeah, everyone needs at least one suit. Even if Rube didn't necessarily wash that suit, he needed a suit. But anyway, he's playing in these leagues growing up. He's playing in this like developing oil and iron league around Pittsburgh. And conversations, talk starts spreading around down into the city of Pittsburgh, where one of the newly named Pirates teams are around. And the owner just fired their current player manager, Connie Mack, who would come back and meet Rube later, and hire a new guy, Patsy Donovan. And Donovan, you know, he's thinking that team's not doing well. We kicked out the old manager. We got to get some fresh blood in here. I heard this guy is good. Let's bring him in. Let's have a conversation. And for Rube, a simple conversation and especially a free breakfast was all you needed to offer him to get him down to meet you. We don't know what happened. This is 1897 at this point. Rube is trying to make a name for himself, play ball. And while we don't know what he said to Patsy Donovan, we do know that after that breakfast, Rube was kicked out, released, didn't even have a chance to try out and practice with the team. Oh, so he messed up really badly. Mm-hmm. Did he never... forget that he wasn't wearing underwear again? We don't know. That's one possibility, but we can only speculate. We can and confirm. I hope we can live breaking news here. It is only conjecture. You are right. Giant man eats breakfast in the nude. Anger's manager. So anyway, when that first job prospect didn't work out, Rube did what any normal person would do in this situation. Became a college boy. Played ball Wait, for some he college. To, he went to college? Rube Waddell went to college. Rube There's Waddell no way he went to high school. I mean, he went to school growing up, but like I said, maybe he didn't finish. I'm not sure oh, about okay. that. It wasn't a priority. Okay. But he ended up going to college. Because small little town Valent College offered to pay him. And now you know this was a long, long time ago if a college is paying a player to play sports for their school. Good. Mm -hmm. Good. Get that money, Rube. And, you know, this was, they call them normal schools. So this was a school for teachers to go and learn pedagogy techniques. Some common normal schools that you might know about that evolved into modern-day universities would be Millersville here in Pennsylvania. The Maryland State Normal School became Towson University. The Baltimore Normal School for Colored Teachers became Bowie State. Some of them evolved into universities, some dissolved. But anyway, this is where Rube went, a school for teachers to learn how to teach. And he got $2 a game, essentially $4 a week, free room, board, and food, and all the chewing tobacco he could, he could chew on. <laughs> What he more can could that you possibly have for? He's got like a one to two month contract for this team. Obviously, he didn't go to any classes, but he had a good time playing. And he was absolutely unstoppable at this level. In throw while pitching seven inning games, he would average about 15 strikeouts a game for a seven inning game. On his off days, he would go up to the nearby town of Greenville and pitch for them. You know, a common thing he would like to do was really make it entertaining for the fans. People don't realize baseball can be fun. This is some common thing that Satchel Paige became known for down the line. Rube would, 
you know, with nobody on base or even with the bases fully loaded. He was so confident in his ability to mow down the side with his menacing fastball, curveball that dropped from your head to your shins, even a screwball, which would break the opposite way with his predecessor to a knuckleball that he liked to call the wobbler that he would wave his outfielders in. I'm going to strike out everyone. Not only is it that impressive for the sheer confidence, but this is back in the time when the game of baseball was way, 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 way different than it is today. Foul balls didn't count as a strike. If you were hit by a pitch, it was just one ball instead of taking the base. And players would hit way more for contact and not strike out at all. He was a strikeout king. The only game that the Lant School lost that year was the only game that Rube didn't pitch. Is there some reason? Was was he doing the grease was he competition? Naked? He was apparently fully clothed. So... There are two versions why he didn't necessarily pitch this game. One story goes, and this is the story that Rube asserted. You know, he would frequently go back and forth between the town of Greenville and Bland College to play games back and forth. And apparently on the way back from Greenville, he was kidnapped. <laughs> kidnapped. Okay. Kidnapped by a group of Mercer County folks that forced him to pitch for them. And he won their game and paid them a dollar. And then he came back and told that story. What might have actually happened was during that day in Greenville, there was a firefighters tournament. And that was going to attract a way larger crowd than Valance Normal School was going to attract. What do you think happened? You determine. I do like that no matter what, he was definitely like, no, I was playing baseball. Don't get me wrong. I played baseball for someone else no matter what. It's just a matter of who I played for. <laughs> yeah, either way, Rube was happy playing ball. He was happy attracting a crowd. And this man was becoming a celebrity in his hometown and the surrounding counties around Butler. And this was unheard of. The celebrity nature behind athletes, no one cared about them. You would just pay a couple bucks, watch a children's game, and go on your merry way, go back to work. This was someone that would attract a crowd that people would want to talk to after. This is how he kind of developed this cult of personality going forward. Um, the second time I think that exact phrase has been said in consecutive weeks. Yep, that's a callback. <laughs> Wait a second, do you hear that, James? It's Mr. Medicinal's music. You, you say cult of personality... You say something. Say three times in a mirror, and he comes up and smacks the shit out of you. <laughs> so at this time, he's playing for Homestead, another like local league, and they're doing some folks that are coming into town from Philadelphia and Pittsburgh, and they're playing scrimmage games against basically professional level players. Maybe they might not be at the Major League Baseball, but playing playing a group of folks that the National League is scouting at the time, and at this point, he attracts. A lot of attention. He's really come to love his new nickname, Rube, as that's become a form of adoration as they shouted at him. And as he's playing well, they decide to give him a chance. He's going to sign with a National League team. He's made it finally. Things might not have worked out for Pittsburgh, but things are going to work out for him now. And he signs a contract to play for the Louisville Colonels. This is when he first meets notorious Fred Clark. Boo, Fred, Fred Clark. Clark. Boo. Crowd, the crowd is... Apparently, we do not like Fred Clark. I've just been informed by our producer that fuck Fred Clark. Craig says Clark. to get the tomatoes Fred ready. Clark. Now, 
this might be the only time I'll say this. In Fred Clark's defense, he and Rube had a tough first meeting. Comes into town, the colonels are staying at a hotel, and Rube arrives at 2 a.m., and he's ready to go. He's ready to meet the team. Tells the front desk person, I gotta meet this Fred Clark guy. I'm hot shit. I am the best thing for this team now. Where's he at? And manages to knock on his door, slam it. Boom, boom, boom. 2 a.m. Fred Clark opens the door. And he doesn't even wait to be invited in. He just storms in the hotel room. And Rube is going on and on about, this is the best decision you ever made. I am not going to let you down. You are going to get so many wins with me. And he's just trying to get him out of his room and get some sleep. This is one of my favorite, favorite Rube Waddell stories. At this point, he realizes there's nothing to it. What Fred Clark, boo, boo, Fred Clark, boo. What Fred Clark decides to do at the time is say, I got an idea. You know what, Rube? Why don't you go and introduce yourself to the rest of the team? Just pass him off to somebody else. What a dick. Uh, What an absolute Oh, I mean, who among us? Have you met this person? An hour later, Rube comes in. He says, oh my god, I introduced myself to everyone like you said, but this one guy wouldn't answer the door. I don't understand. Is everything okay? I think he might be hurt. We got to do something. He's like, oh, what room is he? And he finds out. Ended up belonging to the room of William Hoy, inappropriately nicknamed at the time Dummy Hoy. This is a player that has led to hand signs in baseball. The out sign, the safe sign. Because William Hoy was deaf. He couldn't hear Rube knocking. Okay. There's a lot going on here. Mm-hmm. But yes, yeah, you, he, he, you're running the risk as the, the council. Mm-hmm. I'll let you know. Rube Waddell right now, he's great. But I want to warn you that if you show that his specialness is in some ways a product of just this bizarre era in baseball, that's almost like, hey... A crazy person nowadays doing this would be absolutely bonkers. But you're telling me that we're also inventing hand signs, which is phenomenal that that was an accessibility issue. I love that that came about. But if, if we're talking about a guy who's the teammate with that, all of a sudden now I want to hear about this ASL player. That's going to be another guy down the line. <laughs> so Rube Waddell, over time, he was never happy with Fred Clark. He would... Uh, Fred Clark was a traditionalist, and he didn't like Rube doing cartwheels off the diamond after he struck out the side. He didn't like him waving in players, tried to throw them all around, and ended up going in the Western League, which was the predecessor of the American League at the time. Down the line, he ends up settling in back in Pittsburgh, and Pittsburgh decides to give him a second chance. What you would see with Rube once he got settled into the major leagues, you would have a complete game shutout one day, another complete game shutout the next day, only for him to disappear. And this would be a common theme. He would run off to go fishing. He would go chase firefighters. Maybe in the future, he would even join up with a theater troupe and do some acting on the side. Rube (laughs) was the type of person that loved to be around people and he loved to attract a crowd. And it wasn't really until Connie Mack came in that he started to settle in. Connie Mack would, rather than punish him, rather than fine him for skipping a game, rather than kick him out for breaking some rule that he didn't understand was necessary, Connie would work with him. 
one notable thing that really developed their relationship was when they first started playing with the Milwaukee Brewers, 1900. Rube had just pitched one complete game, another complete game in the past seven days, and they got a doubleheader coming up. Rube goes the distance for the first game, a complete game, 17 extra innings. And oh, so he threw North- two games. He threw essentially two games for the first game of that doubleheader. And with another game coming up, you know, Rube seemed like he was strong. A normal manager would probably work around and think, I got to give this guy a rest. He's done his part already. But Connie Mack knew how to pull at Rube's heartstrings. The next game was just going to be five innings to shorten it up. And Connie Mack says to Rube, hey, Eddie, I got a task for you. You go out there and you finish up those five innings. I'm going to let you spend the rest of the weekend fishing, and you don't have to come back until this weekend is done. Rube throws a one-hit shutout after throwing 22 consecutive innings. That's kind of manipulative by Connie Mack. That's that's a little bit shitty by Connie Mack. Uh, A little bit of a shithead, maybe. It's it's a great story. Are you telling me a baseball owner with a shithead? Connie Mack is kind of a villain in it, but it's a phenomenal story. Anyway, you know, his, he's doing well with this team. They decide to give him another chance at Pittsburgh, but Fred Clark doesn't know how to deal with this guy. He's seen his success, but he doesn't know how to manage him. And he kicks him out again, sends him to the Chicago Orphans or the Cubs. He's unhappy. He doesn't know what to do. He's kind of regressing. But at the end, Rube is still striking out more than anyone else. And after an unfortunate time in Chicago, he decides to join up with a team out west, the Los Angeles Lulus. That is their name. And this, Connie Mack early finds 1900s out. Los Angeles baseball team? Yeah, they had developed a new Western League with teams in like San Francisco, L.A., Oakland. And it was just a way for folks out west to have baseball. And Rube always thought, you know, I'm not happy with these players. They don't know how to manage me. Everyone in L.A. loves me. And Connie Mack found out he was there. And this was coming up on the 1902 season, and Connie Mack needs a pitcher. And he decides to send in some Pinkerton agents to bring Rube Waddell back over. Yes. Actual Pinkerton agents? Actual Pinkerton agents. Okay, so Connie Mack is just straight up a villain for Rube Waddell. (laughs) It's all like a one time he kind of toes the line. He kidnaps him with some fucking PIs to come make him pitch for him again. Well, Rube agrees to go with him afterward. Was it really an agree or was it a you should agree or else type thing? Well, well, the problem was Rube was the type of player that would agree to anything willy nilly. Rube actually, before he signed that contract with the Lalas, uh, the Lulus rather, also signed a contract with every other team in that Western League. And the <laughs> only reason the LA team earned his rights was because they played a game of dice over him. Wow. He is a simple guy. And it's at this point where he ends up coming into the new Philadelphia athletics team. And we're at the point where this American League now, the former Western League, is really starting to rival everyone else. During this stretch, Rube ends up pitching with the Philadelphia athletics from 1902 to 1907. And during that time, Rube is the most effective pitcher in the game. He leads all five years in strikeouts. Let me see if I could pull up his numbers. 1902, 24-7, 
26 complete games, led the league in FIP, led the league in strikeouts with 210 and 276 innings. 1903, 34 complete games and 38 starts. He had 302 strikeouts, and the second closest player was 187 strikeouts. In 1904, he set the record 349 strikeouts in the season. That would go unbeaten until Sandy Koufax came around in the 60s. And some might argue the only reason Sandy Koufax beat that, much like Roger Maris, due to an extended season. But there's no asterisk for Sandy Koufax. Anyway, I don't know. Do you guys have any questions at this point? Is the being distracted by puppies thing real? It is absolutely real. Is there, if he is the John Malkovich in Of Mice and Men, is there a Gary Sinise? Do we, do we have a Rube Whisperer? Ossie Schreckengoss. That was his catcher at the time. That is also uh, the person who created the clause in his contract that Rube was not allowed to eat animal crackers in bed as they would spill on him in the bunk bed. That's, that's pretty great. That's pretty phenomenal. How does, how does it end for Rube Waddell? Tragically, unfortunately. You know, alcoholism, alcoholism just really tears him up. Um, he ends up getting traded to the St. Louis Browns. Is not the same player he was. He doesn't have his catcher Aussie anymore. Connie Mack isn't there to properly encourage and discipline him appropriately. Um, hey, okay, an absence of Connie Mack might not be a fully bad thing for him. Well, without Connie Mack, he delves into alcoholism. He struggles with finances. He's in debt to a couple of marriages that didn't turn out and he can't afford services. Connie Mack, in you know his defense, would always spot Rube money when he needed it. But down the line, without him, Rube tried to do whatever he could. Even if he could play baseball, he would. But at the end of the day, Rube wanted to help out his community. And this ended up being the final straw in what would end up being the end of his life. Um, on two occasions, in 1912 and 1913, there were massive floods that were ready to destroy the city. And as newspaper articles say at the time, Rube single-handedly prevented the floods from coming in, set up dams, and saved the town. Both times, he came out with an awful case of pneumonia. In 1914, it turned into tuberculosis, and he ended up spending the last year of his life struggling with tuberculosis and passed away on April 1st, 1914. April Fool's Day. Tragic. A tragic ending. I don't mean to be insensitive, but dare I say, Rube was a bit of a fool based on these stories that you've told. So, so the way it's fitting, almost. There's a bit of... So a bit what, of what some people poetry. have discussed down the line was this was before the time where anyone had any sort of understanding of intellectual or developmental disabilities. He never had a diagnosis, but some people looking back feel like had he been born in the modern day, whatever support services he might have need to really excel, not just at baseball, but as a human being, would be better afforded to him. And I truly believe that, you know, regardless of whatever diagnosis he might have had, any sort of reasonable accommodations or assistance in his livelihood were just not granted to him because they only used him as a means to make money. And I could only wonder how things would be different if a man like Rue Waddell were, were around today. Diaz, if, if you don't mind, I'd, I'd be interested in starting with your vote since you started off voting against him. I 
so the thing to me when it comes to a good guy, there needs to be elements that appeal beyond the field of competition, right? There needs to be something extra there. With Rube, there's a lot extra there. And as a representative of an era when sports were not quite in the mainstream yet and shit could get a little more crazy than it could now, with the exception of Antonio Brown, I, I do appreciate the Rube story. So I, I have been swayed. I believe I'm a yes. I am a yes. Xavier, do you have any uh, any any final words? I've loved I, I've loved Rube Waddell for years since I first <laughs> learned about him. So I, I'm a very easy yes here. Anyone who can get distracted by puppies, run away from a start that they're having. Just go play with the puppies in in the stands instead of pitching. That's that's was that ever material. something that other teams weaponized against him? Like, would other teams bring puppies to the stadiums so that he would get distracted? Did his yes, home stadium have to enact like an anti-puppy rule? No anti-puppy rules, but they would try anything they could to distract him. Sometimes they would try heckling, but heckling would honestly work. And that was another example of Connie Mack using that to their advantage. Rube was having a tough day and Connie Mack hired someone to go into the stands and fake heckle him, knowing that that would inspire Rube to close up the game, which he did and struck out the side. But, you know, it's difficult because he was unpredictable. He would never know if something would be helpful or detrimental to his performance. And a lot of times he was just a wild card. I I really like Rube Waddell. Before I've rendered my verdict on him, I just want to say I like Connie Mack a lot less than I did before this. But in the case of Rube Waddell, I think all three of us with that give our, our blessing for Diaz. You to send us off with our typical honors for him. We are honored to welcome into the Hall of Guy a guy who is brilliant in his own right, if it may not be in the traditional sense, but nonetheless, he is a light that will serve as a beacon to all guys to be attracted into this glorious hall. Welcome, Rue Waddell, to the Hall of Guy. Dante, it's, it's been a pleasure to have you here for us and, and to tell us about Rube Waddell. I am so thankful to have been here. I highly encourage all three of you and all the listeners out there to read more into him because we have only scratched the surface of the life and the legacy of George Edward Rube Waddell. Credit to Connie Mack. At least he did call him by his first name. I'll leave it at that. That's all I've got. Anybody else? And if, if you wish to really honor his legacy, whenever you refer to Shibe Park, don't call it Connie Mack Stadium. Call it Rube Waddell Stadium. Because the performance that Rube had making the Philadelphia Athletics, the premier Philadelphia baseball league, is what actually led to the creation of Shibe Park. Because the crowd he would bring to Columbia Park on 30th and what is now Cecil B. Moore, the crowd he would bring there literally made it over capacity every game. Well, I, I promise the next time that Shad Park comes up in conversation, <laughs> for me, I will keep that in mind. Uh, with that, I'm James. I've been the very special guest, Xavier. I am the white elephant, Dante Lamondola. And I'm Diaz, and as everybody's favorite baseball song goes, take me out to the ball, guy. Catch y'all next time. Good thing, this is just a game.
game.